all of you while I'm preaching. So it's good to have you here this morning. Thank you for, for being here. Thanks for watching at home. Hi, Katie. Hi, Keith. Um, we're going to be continuing on in 2 Samuel this morning, continuing on as we walk through the book of 2 Samuel chapter 2, looking at the whole chapter this morning. Um, if you aren't aware, we do have some ESV um, journal Bibles in the back that have 2 Samuel in them. They're actually First and 2 Samuel. So if you went, were with us before, it's right there. It continues on in that. There's a few more left back there. Please take them all. We can order more. If you know, they're a really great resource for you. has the scripture and then a blank page right next to it that you can keep all of your notes um, in that um, right there. And so we're, we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, looking at the life of David um, as we continue to see God's covenant people being formed and to understand who they are as a covenant people and how they are to react to and obey and follow the God who has um, released them from slavery, who has brought them through the promised land, who has established them in the promised land, who has provided for them as, as other kingdoms have risen and fallen around them. And as they continue to understand and to figure out who are we as this nation, who do we want to be as this nation? Looking specifically at David, who was anointed as king in 1 Samuel. Um, we see that we kind of the background of, again, of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're coming to this place where the, the nation of Israel longed to be like everybody else. They saw that those around them seemed to be successful, seemed to be prosperous, and wanted to be like them, and went to the Lord and said, we don't like you as our king. We would rather have somebody else. We don't see you. You're not around very often. It feels like we're getting beat up often. We would rather have a king who could provide for us, who can be here with us. And God was very displeased with that request and said, fine, you want a king that kind of goes in with everything that you want in a worldly sense? Here is Saul. And Saul was set up as the first king of Israel, and it was not a great experiment as we went through 1 Samuel, was it? Saul was not a good king. He was everything that God warned Israel that he would be. He did everything that, that he warned Israel that he would do in wars and taxes and having their sons taken off to war. All of those things Samuel did. At the end of 1 Samuel, we see Samuel's life being taken and his sons being taken. And in the middle of that, David was set aside in kind of a private ceremony, but I think known widely that he is going to be the next king of Israel. Not Saul's kin, not the descendants from Saul, but David, this shepherd from nowhere, from this tiny tribe in the middle of nowhere, David is going to be set up a king in God's timing. And so Saul is dead. His sons are dead. We pick up in 2 Samuel where the news is brought to David about Saul is dead. It's now your time to become king. And David, as we saw in 1 Samuel, does something that seems out of character for, at least for me, of what I would respond to my enemy who was pursuing me for years and years and years. He grieves deeply over the loss of Saul and over Jonathan. Even publicly praises Saul. And with the kind of king that he was, which seems out of character, but David is still waiting for God's timing to do what God had promised to do and not stepping into where God doesn't want him to go. And we pick up in 2 Samuel. This is a story in first, or 2 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 1. We see David getting the news of Saul's death, his sons um, dying in this. We see that Saul's body and his sons of his body were kind of ripped apart, and they were hung on the walls um, of the Philistine um, village and to display, to show the Philistines' power over this tiny little nation of Israel. And so what I want to talk about this morning as we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 2 is obedience over the long haul. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to obey God 
when the promise is still out there. When the fullness of God's promise is still just a little bit out of your reach. When you've been following God for years and years and years, and the thing that you believe God promised you has not yet come, how do we stay on course? How do we continue in that process? And we know this from our own experience, that the longer the process, the longer the waiting, the harder it is to obey. The more difficult it is to stay joyful, to stay faithful, to stay at peace, to stay content in what's happening around you in the moment. How many of you have ever flown internationally before? And Canada doesn't count. Sorry, Canada doesn't count um, into that. We just fly, my family and I just went to Turkey this last month or so, long flight. And one of our flights, not mine, I didn't, I did the itinerary. So one of our flights, my son and my wife's flight was a 10-hour flight um, from London to Houston. That's a long flight, right? And if you're flying internationally, it's fun for about 12 minutes into that flight. And then it kind of dawns on you, oh, we've got nine hours and 48 minutes to go of this space, of this kind of one foot square space, looking at the back of that person's head, breathing this air over and over again, getting up and having to step over eight people to go to the restroom. And the longer that flight goes, the more frustrated you get, the more tired you get, the more grumpy you get at the end of that. Until the time where you get off the flight and all that you can do is who cares where you are? Who cares where you landed? It doesn't matter if the flight's even in the wrong place. I just have to get off this ride. I think for many of us in our life, the longer that things go on, the more frustrated we become. And we lose sight of what is out there. One of the things that I think was helpful for my kids in the the long flight, that was their first kind of long flight like that, as they got uncomfortable, especially my Six foot three son crammed into the cheapest seat we could possibly find to get us overseas um, and his long legs to be able to remind him, look, there's something on the other side of this flight. It's worth it. Don't lose your control. Don't lose your composure. Don't do something rash on this flight. It's, It's worth it in the end. And it's hard at times when we walk through life knowing that it's not yet going to come. And we see that in David's life, right? He has been fleeing from Saul for years, for over a decade. The promise was given to to David from Samuel years and years ago that he would be king over Israel. And for years and years and years, that promise did not come true. In fact, he was actively pursued to be murdered so that he would not be able to fulfill that promise. And we see in David's life this up and down process, don't we? There are times when we read stories of David and we kind of cringe, right? We think, oh man, that's, that's not a great choice. I would never have done that in a million years. Why did you make that choice? The promise is clear and so on. And there are other times when we read the story of David and we think to ourselves, I could never obey in the same way that David did. I could never be as faithful as David is in, the, is in this moment. And we see this up and down. And what we see in the life of David, I think the point is to seeing in the life of David is to see a reflection, one of ourselves in the life of David. How fickle we can be in our obedience. How up and down we can be in our faithfulness. How at times when the promise is clear to us and we reject God and say, no, I'm going to go my own way. And at times when the promise is clear to us and we say, yes, God, whatever you want from me, I will do for as long as it takes. And we see God's faithfulness in David's life over and over and over again. 
as David, a God after, or man after God's own heart, continues to come back to the Lord. And what I want to see this morning is that the longer we wait for God's promise to be fulfilled, the harder it is to stay on course and to keep trusting. We get distracted, we get discouraged, even disobedient at times. And David's story reminds us to keep pressing on until the promise is fulfilled. And David points us towards Jesus. All of these stories are not a story in and of themselves. It's not a story in a vacuum. All of these stories are to point us to a greater story, to a greater king, to a greater prophet, to a greater priest. It's pointing us to Jesus who endured all things, who held the promise in front of him so that we too might be able to do the same thing. And so we look to Jesus, or we look to David, not as the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to David as an example of how we to live our lives so that we can look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who is no mere example, but is the power for us to keep being obedient. Let's look this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 2. I think for the sake of this morning's um, sermon, it is Good for us to read the whole chapter at one time. I know it's long, it's 32 verses, but it's good for us, I think, in this particular sermon to get a a whole picture of what's going on before kind of diving into the specifics of it. And so um, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 2. After this, so again, after David lamented, after he was sorrowful over Saul and Jonathan's death, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up from there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old and began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the, sub, the, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarum, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zerai were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. 
Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner again said to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night throughout the Rabbah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and he had gathered all the people together. There were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which is at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. We see this story unfolding from David. And we see very quickly on in this story that Israel is not super um, together, not super unified. There's not this sense of, all right, Saul's dead. Samuel has said from years ago that now David is king, and now let's all Israel surround and support David. It's not happening. In fact, there's a civil war that's beginning to unfold and bubble up here in Israel. These tribes going against one another. As if fighting outside of them was enough, we now see that their fighting is turning inward among themselves and fighting among themselves. And the obedience over the long haul is becoming harder and harder. The longer this waits, we see that the more difficulty of being obedient. This morning, I'm going to share with you three ways that we can step into obedience when it feels like the promise is not yet coming true. Number one, if you're following along in your notes, number one, we hold firm to truth. Hold firm to truth. Secondly, I'm going to talk about seeking help from God. We seek help from God. And finally, this morning, we pursue goodness. As we are waiting, as we are trusting God, we pursue goodness. First, let's look at hold firm to the truth. I just want to look at the first two words in chapter 2. After this. What we see in the life of David is a lot of after thises. We see over and over again, after Samuel has said, I will want you to be king over all Israel. He is anointing him. We have seen in 1 Samuel, and now again in 2 Samuel, and after this, and an after this, and an after this, and an after this, and an after this, and now in chapter 2 again, it starts with, and an after this. And it does not go on in chapter 2 and say, and after this, David was anointed king over all Israel, and everything worked out great, the end. It says, after this, David inquired. It is not yet time for David to be king. 
It is not yet time for him to fulfill the promise that God had given to them. David is waiting again. The promise is not yet fulfilled at this time. David's waiting again for God to fulfill his purposes. And David is determined to wait and not get ahead of the Lord. One of the things that we see over and over again in the life of Israel is them getting ahead of the Lord, of not being patient, of not waiting, of saying, okay, God is not answering us. God is not responding to us. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to do our own plans. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to continue on in our own way. But David, at least in this instance— Remember I said the life of David is a roller coaster, but in this instant, in this moment of time, when it seems most advantageous for David to step in and to seize the throne, he doesn't. He waits. I think for some of us, I think for many of us, our life feels like it's one after this after another. It's one more day of not yet, not today. Another event, another battle, another fight, another disappointment, another struggle, another temptation. Again and again, day in and day out, we wake up and it's after this and it's the same as it was the day before. The promise isn't fulfilled. The fullness of what God has for us. The struggle is still there. The fight is still there. The hard job is still there. The disease is still there. The rough marriage is still there. The difficult schooling is still there. The lack of finances is still there. All of those things are still there. God's promise has not yet been fulfilled. The the questions are still there. The, the, The answers are not yet being fulfilled. And so what do we do in those moments? What do we do when it's just one after this after another? Well, we hold on to the truth. One of the things that David was very clear about, what David wanted to know, wanted to do more than anything else, was to wait for God's timing. To say, God, you promised this, and so you're going to do this in your timing, in your way. What we see in verse 4 is, this be- is beginning to unfold. In verse 4, David inquires of the Lord, and then verse 4 it says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Again, what do we not see? We do not see David saying, I'm seizing the throne. It's mine. I'm taking it now. I'm going to the heart of Israel, and I'm taking what God says is mine. What we see is the men of Judah coming to David and saying, we are submitting to you as our king. We are believing the promise of God. We are believing that you are uh, God's man for this role, and we are submitting to you over us at this time. Now, what we see, didn't see David do is seize this. And also what we don't see David do is complaining and saying, just Judah? Samuel said everybody. Samuel said all of Israel. And you're making me king over part of this. And I think at times what might be harder than having the promise not fulfilled is only getting a piece of the promise. It's only getting a glimpse of what God is giving to you. I think at times it makes us more frustrated and more angry and more agitated because we kind of get a taste of what could be. But David in this holds firm to the truth that God promised through Samuel, I would be king over all Israel. What's happening right now is that Judah wants me to be their king. And so I'm going to be their king. And I'm going to trust God that the rest of the details, 
the rest of Israel, that me being king over all of this will happen in God's timing, in God's way. David held on to the truth that it was God who was going to do this and did not get ahead of himself. What we see in the story, though, is not only David. We see Israel, and we see a leader of, of Saul's army trying to seize what he knows is not his. The first several verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see this great story. David's coming out. He's being set as king over all Judah. He does this really nice thing for those who helped um, Saul and buried him well and did that. But then we see we pick up in verse 8. But Abner, David waiting on the Lord. But Abner, no thanks. I want what is mine. I want what I have worked for. I want to set up someone that I can control, that I can be the one behind to be able to do everything I want to do. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, brought him over to Manaheim, and he made him king over Gilead and all of Israel. We see the very different between David and between Abner. David waiting patiently for God to do his will in his way. Abner taking. Abner making Ishbosheth king. Abner stepping in to say the promise, I don't like it. I don't like the truth. I don't like that David has been set up king. I like that Saul was king. I like the power that gave me. I like the prestige that gave me. I'd rather have his son be king so I can keep all of those things. So I'm making him king over all of Israel, over this section of Israel. I believe in my heart that Abner knew the promise. Abner knew the next king of Israel was David. Abner knew that Samuel had set that up. Abner seized an opportunity to step in and try to thwart God's plans. You see, the difficulty in Abner's heart is that the sin that was there, the anger that was there, the pride that was there, caused him to be resistant to what he knew to be true. He knew the promise of God. He knew what was said. He knew all of those things. Too often times we give up on God's promises and we take matters into our own hands. And the longer we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, the more tempted we are to say, no, this is mine. I need to fix this. I need to do something in here. I need to step in. I need to make this my own. I need to take this onto myself. The more we're tempted to mess up or to try to thwart God's plans. As we wait, God is calling us to hold firm to what we know to be true. What we see in the life of Jesus, we fast forward many, many years to the life of Jesus. And Jesus had a promise he had given to him from the Father. You go and you live and you serve and you're obedient and you will die and you'll be raised from the dead. And there is a way that this has to happen. There is a a process for how this has to happen. You must live and you must die and you must be raised from the dead. You must trust me as he goes forward. And we see in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 4, We see that Jesus is being tempted to thwart God's plans. The evil one comes to Jesus and say, listen, there's a better way. There's an easier way. There's a faster way for all of these things to be accomplished. You want power now? You want authority now? What the Father has promised you? You want it? I'll give it to you now, right here in front of you. Eat this bread. Make this stone into bread. Eat it. I know you have the power to do it. Jesus' response was what? To hold on to truth and say, no, I do not live by magic tricks. I live by the word of God. I'm trusting him for everything that comes 
Satan takes him to the highest temple and says, cast yourself off. The Bible says the angels will protect you. Jesus says, that's not true. We don't put our God to the test. He holds on to this. Satan takes Jesus and says, listen, you want all of this now. Look around you. All the authority, all the power, all the government, all of you want this world to bow down to you right now. Just look to me and I will give you all this power. And God says, we worship God only and you are not him. And so I will not bow. Jesus was tempted in that moment. He knew the truth. He knew the promises to say, I want to shortcut this and do things my own way. But Jesus held on to the truth. My question to us this morning is, do we, first and foremost, do we know the promises of God? Do we know the truths of God? Are we taking God's word and hiding it in our heart? Are we spending time allowing it to wash over us? Are we allowing the word of God to to seep deeply into us, to cut to the very deepest parts of us, to expose all the things that need to be exposed, to instruct us and to teach us and to change us? Are we allowing God's word to do this? My challenge to you this morning is that we must be in God's word, hiding it away. My challenge specifically this morning is for us as men to be in the word of God on a regular basis. To not give an excuse that we're too busy and work is too hard and I have too many things going on or whatever it is. But as men, we're in God's word, allowing it to change us, allowing us to dig deeply into our hearts that we might lead, that we might care, that we might hold on to the promise, that we might support and encourage those around us. Give me another encouragement this morning, specifically students. We just prayed for schools just a little bit, a little bit ago. There's not a point in the future as students, whether you're elementary, junior high, whether you're in high school, college, whatever it is, where you think, when I become an adult, whatever that is in your mind, When I become an adult, when I become a mom or a dad, when I get my life settled, when I figure out who I am, then I will begin these patterns. Then I will begin to hide God's word in your heart. Students, you're hiding God's word in your heart. There's a battle for your hearts and your minds in the world today. Whether you're homeschooled, at a Christian school, in a public school, whatever it is, there's a battle for your hearts and your minds. And the way you win that battle is by God's word being hidden in your heart. So students, dads, moms, all of us hide God's word in our heart because it's going to get hard. The battle will be hard. You will look around you and you will see what feels like success around you of people who have denied God's word, don't care about God's word. It will feel like their life is going well. It will feel like they're successful. It will feel like everything is going good for them. And you will be tempted in that moment to forget the promises of God, to take something for yourself and to say, I want this for my own. Psalm 37, 34 says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land and will look on you when the wicked are cut off. Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said on that day, in the future, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We hold the truth of the reality of God, of the presence of God, of the coming of God out in front of us so that day by day we wait for the Lord and obedient for the Lord so that one day we will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your wait has been worth it. You trusting in the truth has been worth it. You not taking things into your own hands has been worth it. Jesus himself in Hebrews tells us, why did Jesus endure all things? Hebrews 12 tells us, 
for the joy set before him. The promise given to him by the Father that all of this will be yours if you are obedient in all things. Jesus joyfully endured all things, even the cross. So first, we hold on to the truth. Secondly, we seek help from God. It seems obvious to us, not always obvious, but David, again, seems obvious to David, not always obvious to David. We see him picking up again in verse 1 of chapter 2. After this, what did David do? After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up? God says, go up. David says, where? God says, go to Hebron. Where does David go? Hebron. It seems really, I, I love and I hate that it's just this boom, 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 boom thing. David says, what do I do? God says this. David says, yes. David does that. We move on to the next section. But I don't want to just move on to the next section because it's deeply important what we see here in these first few verses. David inquired of the Lord. As we read through 1 Samuel, was David always described as a man who inquired of the Lord? Nah. Right? David, remember at one time that David decided, I'm out of Israel. I don't like this place anymore. Saul's going to murder me. Where does he go? To the land of the Philistines. And he lives there, and he battles, and he lies, and he steals, and he goes to war and does all of these things. I'm fairly confident that wasn't in response to a clear command of the Lord. That was David inquiring of his own heart. But in this instance, David inquired of the Lord. Before stepping into this, again, after this, Saul's dead. The throne essentially is his. It seems natural for David to start moving towards the throne to take over all of Israel. But David stands in place, inquires of the Lord. Yahweh, what do I do next? Where do I go next? What would you have for me next? I know you've promised me this kingdom. I know you've promised me to be king. I do not want to get ahead of myself. Where do I go next? And David heard and obeyed. So we seek help from God. We see that, again, the opposite of that from the rest of the cast of characters in 2 Samuel 2. David inquired of the Lord. We see again in verse 8 and 9, Abner took Ishbosheth. No inquiring of the Lord. No going to God. No going to Yahweh and said, Saul's dead. Your king's dead. His, his sons are dead. What do we do next in this? No inquiring whatsoever. Ishbosheth simply stepped into action and took action upon himself. We look later on in verses 18 and 19. We have this very weird gladiator type game where every opponent killed the other opponent and everybody was left dead in this moment. And Abner, we see this, or Asahel, pursues Abner, goes after him. Verse 18 and 19, these three sons, and Asahel was swift as foot. In verse 19, and Asahel pursued Abner, not veering to the right or to the left. We see no inquiring of the Lord, completely reactionary, completely driven by emotion. We go down in verse 24 and 25. Guess what happens to Asahel? He dies. Guess who steps in? His brothers. What do they do? Pursue Abner. No inquiring of the Lord. No pause whatsoever. Let's go after them once again. We see these on these two sides of this, this really clear, patient, faithful waiting of David. Your promise is not yet fulfilled. I'm looking to you for help. Where do I go next? On the other side of this, we see reactionary. 
We see gut responses. We see them just stepping into it and jumping into it and no inquiring of the Lord whatsoever. They were driven by um, emotion and self. And the longer we wait, the more likely we are to become impatient. And the more likely we are to forget that God is still with us and wants to help us and walk with us and give us wisdom. And the longer we wait, the less we look to the Lord for help. At the beginning, at the immediate, at the front of this, yes, we're great, aren't we? God help me. What do I do next? And where do I go next? And things don't quite move as fast as we like them to move. And so we stop asking for help and we start relying on ourselves. But why is that? Why do we so easily at times just give up inquiring of the Lord? Well, I think at times, the longer we wait, the longer we feel like God is quiet, the more we're tempted to believe that God has forgotten about us, that he doesn't actually care about us, that he's not actually able to fulfill the promises that he said that he can fulfill, that he's stopped listening to us a long time ago, stopped talking to us a long time ago. So we convince ourselves of that and we stop asking God for help. We stop inquiring of him. We stop looking to him for all things in our lives. I know it sounds over the top, and I know it might sound like hyperbole, but I don't say it with any exaggeration. In everything in our life, our immediate response needs to be, I inquired of the Lord. Again, it may sound stupid, but today, your lunch plans, did you honestly submit them to the Lord? No. Most of you are probably, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why do I have to ask God if I want ham or chicken for lunch? But I think in us, it's developing a pattern in us that we recognize our weakness. We recognize our limitations. We recognize that our lives are not in our own hands. We recognize that it's God who has done all things from the beginning to the end. And so in those tiny, little, insignificant things, we look to the Lord and we say, God, help me in this. What should I do in this? Should I have ham or chicken for lunch today? And I know it seems insignificant, but it's developing a pattern in us. And so that when the big things come, it is more natural for us to say, God, before I even make a move, before I take a step in any direction, where do you want me to go? Many of us are so far down the path. We are miles down the road of our plans. And then we're like, oh, wait, I was supposed to ask God something. What was it? Oh, yeah, what am I supposed to do? And we're way down the road, and we're already deep into our plans, and it's aggravating, and it's frustrating, and it's not working out at all the way we want to. But David, in this instance, sought help from the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Are we a church? Are we a people in every decision we make? Are we an elders group? Are we deacons? Are we life group leaders? Are we neighbors who are regularly, intentionally saying, God, what's next? What would you have me to do next? What is my next task today? Who is the next person you want me to talk to today? What job should I take? Where should I go to school? Who should I date? Should I date? Is it important? All of these questions should be surrounding us on a regular basis. What am I to do today? How am I to respond to this? Again, students, I want to press into you this morning. Students, as you are instructed in ways that you know, I have two students in university now, as they're instructed in ways that they know are far outside of what Scripture teaches them. Are we as students, are we as individuals stepping into inquiring of the Lord and saying, God, what do I do with this? How do I respond to this? 
What do I think about this? What does your word say about this? How can I demonstrate love and kindness and speak in truth in this particular moment? Are we inquiring of the Lord on a regular basis? We see in the life of Jesus, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, Jesus, fully man, fully God, fully dependent on his Father, looking to his Father for all things. John chapter 5. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus, in everything he did, said, Dad, what's next? Where would you have me go next? Who would you have me speak to next? What miracle do you want me to put on display next? Who do you want me to call as your disciples? Who am I to show care to today? Who am I to heal today? What are you doing? Where are you working that I might follow you and join you in the work that you're doing? Jesus was regularly, consistently looking to his father and saying, what's next? The same call is on our lives. is to look to our God and to say, what's next? What would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? We inquire of the Lord as we wait. We continue to ask God, what do we do next? Thirdly, finally, what do we do? As we wait, we pursue goodness. As we wait, we pursue obedience. We look for ways to obey. We look for ways to say yes to God. We look for ways to honor God. And the longer we wait, the harder that is, isn't it? I was a teacher for a time. My degree many, many years ago was in teaching elementary education. One of the worst possible things, and when I remember I taught a third grade class, 30 plus kids, all of them, Jesus loves them. I'll just say that. All, every single one of them, Jesus loved them. Just say that very clearly. Jesus loved every one of those 30 kids. Me, not always. The worst possible thing on a given day is when I would take this class of 30 plus kids and take them to one of their specials, to art or to gym or whatever it is, and that class was not ready for my 30 kids. And I had to wait in a hallway with 30 kids for what felt like days for this gym teacher to put away the kickballs so I could rush these 30 kids in and say, they're your problem now. And the longer they waited, they did not become more obedient the longer they waited. They didn't look to me longer and say, Mr. Langdon, can we can wait longer here? I would love to wait more quietly. Can we do that? It never happened once. More often than not, I had to take my class back into the classroom. Put your heads on your desk. Not a word from any of you until that gym teacher comes and gets you. And then they're, you're, they're, um, they're her problem at this point. But the longer we wait for us, the, the more opportunities, let's be honest, we look for ways to make life a little more fun. To kind of bring some excitement into life again. To do what we like to do. Or do what fun is to do. And at times, let's be honest, waiting is not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not something I look forward to. But we see David pursuing goodness, verses 4 through 7. I won't read them again, but David responds and he blesses, he blesses the people of Jabesh-Gilead because they were kind to Saul. David had not yet given the promise fully, just made king only over Judah at this particular time. But he takes a moment as he's waiting to bless these people who showed honor and respect to their king. And said, bless them and protect them and encourage them to stand firm. And did great things and pursued goodness as he was waiting. 
Again, on the flip side of that, we see Abner, the rest of them, not exactly pursuing goodness. Abner sets up Ishbosheth as king. And one of the first things that we see recorded here, what does Abner do is they gather some guys of Abner, some guys of Joab, of David's. They gather around this pool. And it's Abner's great idea to say, I'm bored. Let's do something fun. Not euchre. We're not going to play Wii together. We're not going to get a game of pickleball going against each other. Let's fight each other to the death. That sounds like fun. And so what Abner does, and we see in this passage of Scripture, he calls them together. In verse 14, Abner said to Joab, let the men arise and compete before us. The word in Hebrew means play. This is a game to Abner. While Abner is waiting, while Abner is, is seeing what God is doing, Abner is finding ways to be more egregious, to be more disobedient, to play into this more and more. And we see this story played out where these 12 from one side and 12 from the other side come together and they murder each other. And 24 people die instantly in this moment. And Abner's response, that was fun. That's great. That's exactly what I wanted to see. It's exciting for us. We see that Abner pursuing disobedience in this. Pursuing what he knows not to be true. And the promise for us gets harder and harder and harder. And we continue to pursue goodness because we know it will be worth it in the end. I'm challenging us, I'm encouraging us as a church to resist these short-term gains. To resist these short-term pleasures to remind ourselves of what the goal is on the end, to continue to say, yes, I have not yet achieved this. God's promises are not yet here yet, but today I will still obey. Today I will look for ways to obey. Today I will look for ways to be obedient. I will look for ways to demonstrate kindness. I will look for ways to show goodness. I will look for ways to serve today as I wait. And there are many of us, myself included at times, the longer the wait comes, the more frustrated I become the lazier I become, the more apathetic I become. There are times where I say, let's play games today. I don't care about the results. I don't care about the destruction. I don't care about what it does. I want to have fun today. I want to play a game today. Whatever it is. But God is calling us to pursue goodness. He's calling us to continue to step in as we wait for the Lord. And we see how it ends up for Abner. He's pursued One of of David's men is murdered, is killed by his own spear. His brothers go and fight, and we see hundreds of people die because of this disobedience. We see this civil war being begun because of this disobedience, because Abner wanted to show pride and wanted to show how big that he was in this moment. We see destruction and the long-term effects of all of those things. It did not accomplish what they longed for it to accomplish. The Apostle Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, Verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13. As we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What Paul is telling us and Paul is telling to Titus here, listen, we're waiting. God has promised us this thing. He's promised us that Jesus will come back and take us home. It has not yet happened. He has not yet come for us. 
What does Paul encourage Titus to encourage the churches to do? Obey. Be zealous in good works. Find ways to be obedient. My challenge to you this morning as you sit and as you wait for God to do whatever it is that he's going to do, look for ways to be obedient. Look for ways to be a blessing. Look for ways to build people up. Look for for ways to, to show kindness to others. Look to the Lord, inquire of the Lord, and say, God, today, you may not fulfill your promise today, but what is it that you have for me today that I can obey for you, obey you today? And encourage us and challenge us in this. And again, we see the life of Jesus and this pointing to him. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul describes Jesus in this way. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The encouragement, the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is a really simple question, but an unbelievably difficult question. As we wait, are we willing to be obedient even unto death? Even if being obedient brings us our own demise and our own death. And it may not be a physical death. It may be a career death. Maybe a relational death, maybe a financial death, maybe a reputation death, a self-death. Where we're saying, I'm putting myself and my desires and my dreams aside for the sake of being obedient to the cross. The music team is going to come now as we take our time for the Lord's Supper. I think as we move into our time of the Lord's Supper this morning, it's, it's important for us again to think about as we wait— for God's promises, as we wait for God to do what he's going to do, one of the reasons that we take the Lord's Supper is because we are waiting. It's because we're longing for something to be fulfilled. A promise has been given that has not yet been fulfilled. We have been promised eternal life. We have been promised a home with God. We have been promised that Jesus will come back for his people. And that in this particular moment in time has not yet happened. And so one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper is to continue to press us forward, to remind us of the truth that we might hold on to the truth that, yes, it is true and it is real that Jesus did live. He did die. He was raised from the dead. He is coming back from us again or for us again. But to remind us that we can hold on to that truth and not veer to the left or to the right and remind us of what Jesus has done for us. It reminds us of this moment as we take up this, the bread and the juice of, of our need to, to look to God for all things. To say, God, because I'm eating this bread and drinking this juice, it reminds me that it was not in myself. Salvation was never found in myself. It was found in Jesus. And so in all things, I need to look to you for help. It helps us to pursue goodness because we know we're not there yet, that Jesus has not yet come back yet. And so we proclaim his goodness. We proclaim his death until he comes back. We remind ourselves again and again is to draw us forward, our attention and our promise forward as we move forward in faith. We take the Lord's Supper this morning as a reminder to us that it is Jesus who died. It is Jesus who came in bodily form, who lived the perfect life for us, obeyed in all things, looked to his Father, did what his Father told him to do in all things who died a death that we can never die on our own, who took the punishment, the guilt, the shame of our death or our sin on himself, 
so that we might be made whole, who was raised from the dead on the third day, that we might know that God is for us and not against us. The Lord's Supper this morning is for those who are trusting in Jesus, who have made that faith step to say, it is not in me, but it is in you. Jesus, you have done all things that is required of me. You said it is finished. I believe you when you say it is finished. I am trusting you completely for all things. If you have not yet made that step of faith, if you're still questioning, if you're still asking, if you're still seeking this morning, we ask that you not take the Lord's Supper. See it. See the symbolism before you. Think about what God has done for you, but don't take just yet. We have kids this morning who are here, and I'm glad that kids come back after Children's Church to be able to see and to witness and to see this gospel message being put on display in front of us. If your child has made a decision um, to walk for Jesus, and we're seeing that in repentance in their lives, then please enjoy this with them. But if they're still questioning or not sure, this is not the time to practice or to just give them a snack before lunch. This is a time to demonstrate and to talk to them about what's going on this morning. As we sing this song, as the elements are being passed out to us this morning, reflect on the work of Christ. Remember that the times that that is a long haul for obedience, but that Christ has done everything that we might be obedient and continue to be faithful. Let's sing.